0: Hi, and welcome back to OA On Air via social distancing. This week, it's 321 Go with Cosmo Masero. Then, our own Ben Josephson talks to Connor Doherty from the New York Times. And in two minutes with Tom, Tom and I catch up on all things current events. First up, 321 Go.
1: 321 Go on OA On Air, our weekly look into the world of public affairs, culture, business, and the economy. I'm your host, Cosmo Macero. In this week's edition of 321 Go, we talk about how COVID 19 is changing the models for businesses as they reopen, including in dramatic fashion at many Starbucks across the U.S. And Diane Isaacson and Suzanne Morris discuss a landmark Supreme Court decision protecting workplace rights from members of the LGBTQ community. Finally, we talk about the apology and how it's often misused in the world of public relations and crisis communications. All right, we're back for another episode of 321 Go on OA on Air, joined by Isaacs, Isaacson, the official voice of OA on Air. Kayanne, it's good to be back talking to you.
0: Always a pleasure. We took a week off. How are you
1: yep yep had a had a had a stand in, but nothing like the original, the real McCoy ca I <laughs> on air Hey um oh, we're so deep into the fallout and recovery and reopening and repositioning and the new normal the new America with covid nineteen um you could always find something every week every day that has been dramatically impacted by the pandemic but when you look at an iconic and very visible uh and well integrated uh business well integrated into our lifestyle like Starbucks and and you realize that they may be changing the Starbucks experience completely out of necessity it's pretty remarkable and and I think that that's what's happening at least with many of their stores, right? Let's talk about it.
0: Yeah, I think it's certainly one of those brands and businesses that that jumps out. Uh, they've announced that they're closing, I think, 400 stores nationwide. Which it sounds like a lot, but at the same time, when you think about how many Starbucks locations there are, it's probably you know just a tiny dent. But they're rethinking how they're going to do business and focusing more on their, like, takeout model, um, which, you know, using the app is incredibly effective. Once the Starbucks app came into my life, I feel like things just really took a turn for the better in terms of waiting in coffee lines, particularly in the morning. Um, I know that here... Uh, the Starbucks that's closest to us is about 20 minutes away in Northern California. And the one that has access and space to be doing takeout outside. So people don't even have to come in has been open from the beginning. Whereas the other location, probably about a mile down the road that's in like a strip mall uh, hasn't been open because it just doesn't have that capacity. So we're seeing how businesses have said, People's behaviors are changing, and we have to change with them. And I do think that the announcement coming from Starbucks is just probably the you know the tip of the iceberg of what we're going to continue to see in the months ahead.
1: In, in, in I mean, the hanging around the coffee shop model. And I've always sort of wondered. I, I had to. I've had to assume. Well. If there's no time limit for how long you can hang around in a Starbucks on your laptop, then it probably means they have the data that shows that that contributes to revenue in a positive way. Either way. Well, free Wi Fi goes a long way. <laughs> and free Wi Fi, and you're going to buy that second cup of coffee or whatever it may be. But that's a big part of the traditional coffee shop model, including for Starbucks. Um, and they certainly have a robust. Um, uh, and you know, and they've enhanced it during COVID nineteen takeaway model and uh, and 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 with the app. But I don't know. I think of Starbucks. I think of a car, co- co- an upper scale coffee shop. You know, I don't, I don't want nothing against Dunkin' Donuts. I don't want to hang around in a Dunkin' Donuts. But the idea of a Starbucks is 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 it's it's a relaxing environment for you to spend some time and to linger, as well as other coffee shops. But let's let's use this one and that really is a major cultural change uh if it starts to take root at at uh, starbucks uh shops all around uh, the country
0: well i think that's what it is right businesses have to kind of look at we we have this conversation with with clients a lot not only what like what are you and what do you want to be but how do people perceive you as a brand, as a business and in your offerings? So if Starbucks has historically said, you know, we're a coffee shop where people like to sit around and use the free Wi-Fi and enjoy the space, but now that's not gonna be the case anymore. People aren't gonna feel comfortable or people don't wanna sit in a coffee shop and wear a mask, then how do we shift and be ahead of that curve so that we stay viable? Um it's a smart move and as I said, I don't think they're going to be the only ones to make it, and I'm not even talking about just coffee shops. Just in general, businesses where people have typically congregated uh, are going to look different. People just aren't comfortable doing it anymore, or at least not at
1: the same level that they used to be. I mean, look, the the we haven't, you know, have we figured out the future of movie theaters yet? I mean, all these things are all... At best, you're talking about all right. What's the, the simplest strategy? Dramatically reduced capacity, dramatically reduced, uh, you know, um, um, audience. But at some point, that the economics of that don't work. So I, I think that there are a lot of features of American life, particularly leisure time, that are are, are just kind of in suspended animation.
0: Yeah, uh, we were talking about that this weekend. I love going to the movies. Always loved going to the movies. My husband was saying that he thinks it's going to become, you know, they're going to take out every other seat or whatever it is. They're going to have to double the prices and then it's going to become this like going to the movies is going to be almost like it was, you know, a generation ago, like a big deal to go out to the movies because it's going to be this more expensive and perhaps more extravagant, Expenditure for a family to make, whether that means more dinner offerings and you know things like that. Maybe we take the luxe level, and that's that's just the basis for movie going. Um, I would love to see. We've talked about this uh, a few weeks ago. I would love to see drive-in movies make a larger comeback. I love a drive-in movie theater. I think that they're such a fun way to experience a movie. Um, I grew up in Southern California, so we used to do that a lot, and. Why not? It's socially acceptable um, in terms of spatial distancing. You don't necessarily have to wear a mask and it gives you uh, a fun night out for, you know, your family or for a group of kids.
1: I agree. I'm looking forward to that resurgence. Honestly, I've been to a drive-in movie less than less than five times in my life. I, I just sort of I missed the whole heyday of that and and, and i don't know how but i did and i've been a couple times as a novelty i'd love to see that you know and with regard to traditional movie theaters yeah look i i wonder how does the luxe movie experience with not just the the really nice recliner seats but the whole table service and you get a full meal Is, is that is that going to go away, though? Does that make it more difficult? I, I, I really don't know. I, th- I think it needs to be figured out. But, you, you know, you're definitely right about one thing. You, we're going to be paying more for stuff, and, and I think we need to be prepared for that. And, and and if you want to support industry and businesses, then you're going to have to be ready to do that. Of course. Yeah.
0: And uh, organizations on- are going to have to make some changes. That's, that's for
1: sure. Agreed. All right, well, we'll see what happens, but um, good conversation, cayenne, and and it's every week there's some new feature of American life, and I'm wondering, gee, what that what's that going to look like now?" So here's another one. To be determined, to be determined. thank you.
2: Dan Morse, vice president at O'Neill and Associates. On Monday, the Supreme Court issued a landmark ruling that prohibits employment discrimination against members of the LGBTQ+ plus community. That means across the country, LGBTQ+ plus individuals can no longer be fired from their jobs because of their sexual orientation, gender identity, or gender expression. We're talking to Arlene Isaacson who is a longtime LGBTQ plus activist and a volunteer co-chair of the Massachusetts Gay and Lesbian Political Caucus about this important ruling. Isaacson has lobbied on behalf of LGBTQ plus rights on every major LGBTQ plus issue in Massachusetts for the last 30 years and led lobbying for America's first same-sex marriage breakthrough in Massachusetts. Welcome, Arlene Isaacson.
3: Thank you. It's great to be here.
2: Thank you. So can you do, give us just a very brief and high-level overview of the cases that the Supreme Court decided upon this week
3: and their importance to the LGBTQ plus community? Sure. The um, The decision this week was a watershed, historic ruling affirming that federal law protects LGBTQ workers from job discrimination. And it came in the form of three different cases. Uh, in one instance, there was a transgender woman who worked as a funeral director Uh, she informed the owner of the funeral home that uh, she was transgender and she planned to come to work as the woman that she is and she was fired. The second case involved a skydiving instructor, a man who um, uh, skydiving instructors have to strap the guest to them uh, front to back and he was doing that with a woman client he, she was clearly nervous, so he was trying to calm her down. And one of the things he said was, don't worry, I'm gay. She ended up telling the guy she had come to the venue with, who told the owner, and the owner then fired him. Uh, originally, the uh, the case was rejected because the claim the federal court rejected it, saying that the Civil Rights Act did not protect him from losing his job because of his sexual orientation. The third case involved a... Uh, a guy who was a had a job as a County Child Welfare Services coordinator. And he was fired when his boss found out that he joined a gay softball league. That almost doesn't pass the laugh test when you think about it, but that's mm-hmm. actually the facts of the case. Um, so in, in each of these cases, what was going on essentially was that the Supreme Court recognized that existing federal law, federal sex discrimination protections for workers do apply to LGBTQ people, because when you're discriminated against because someone doesn't like you for your sexual orientation or your gender identity, you're really being discriminated against because of your sex.
2: Okay, thank you. That's a really helpful summary. Um, can you talk a little bit about the the historic context
3: leading up to this ruling? Well, it, there's a there are multiple layers to that. Uh, Most people have heard about the fact that there were uh, historic stonewall riots in New York City um, uh, that took place circa 1969, 1970. And that, in fact, did precipitate a significant chunk of a more militant kind of advocacy by some people in what was then called the gay community. Um, And in fact, was the LGBTQ community, since so many of the people leading the riot were trans. Uh, But in fact, across the country in, in, in a number of venues, and in Massachusetts in particular, we were fighting for uh, for civil rights for many years. There were organizations like the Daughters of Bilitis and uh, the Homophile League, and they were advocating, albeit in a rather different, more mainstream form, for rights for LGBTQs. And in Massachusetts, for example, uh, the Massachusetts had a... Gay and lesbian civil rights bill, an anti-discrimination that pa- bill that passed in 1989. Now, admittedly, it took 17 years to get there, which is a ridiculous amount of time, particularly because the bill itself actually only changed two words in existing law. There had been in Massachusetts a law that said you cannot discriminate against someone based on their race, creed, color, etc., in the areas of employment. Housing, credit, public accommodations. To that existing law, we were trying to add the words or sexual orientation, those two words. But it took 17 years to get there. So the the fact that it did, and subsequently in the aughts, we fought for trans trans equality for our transgender family and friends so that they wouldn't be discriminated against. And again, it took about 10 years to pass those laws. we've been moving in the right direction culturally, and in some states, we've been moving in the right direction legally, but it's taken a very long time. Some of it, though, has been informed by cultural changes, and I think that may have informed what happened at the Supreme Court as well.
2: Yeah, it's interesting to hear from you just that, that, you know, brief history of what the law was in Massachusetts, um, and that it took 17 years for it to get passed in 10 years around um, uh, the protection for trans workers. So, you know, it's an, it's an interesting insight into the, the, the uh, global perspective that we're looking at here. What, um, what do you think the impact will have, the, the ruling will have on LGBTQ workers uh, here in Massachusetts and around the country? And also, what do you think the impact will be on employers?
3: The the effect for the LGBTQ community is enormous. Um, no one ever wants to lose a job because of who they are as opposed to what they do or how competent um, they are at their job, uh, especially during the times of COVID. This is the, la- the last time in the world, the least time in the world where anyone wants to be fired, and we're finding significant numbers of uh, people in our community who are suffering from that, especially LGBTQ people of color. Uh, the, the, the stats, the estimations are pretty high. So the impact is enormous uh, because to date, we've had certain rights that we've slowly but surely been winning. So for the most noteworthy that people know is the right to marry. Uh, but the irony is that until the ruling this week, in many states in this nation, you could get married on Sunday because that was legal and then fired on Monday because it was not you were not protected. being gay so that irony is now beginning to be eroded and thankfully you can now if you're married on sunday and they want to fire you on monday because of it you now can uh you are now protected by federal law but there are many areas in which we're not protected and there are many states where you don't have where you don't have protections or at the federal level so for example in housing in credit in public accommodations going into stores in education uh, transportation. So we still have quite a ways to go. And of course, in the military, given what just happened under the current uh, Trump administration. So there's a lot of work still to be done, but this is an enormously important, hugely impactful decision.
2: So the ruling was six to three with both Chief Justice John Roberts and Justice Neil Gorsuch joining the four liberal justices. What signal do you think that that uh, sends to the nation's LGBTQ plus citizens?
3: Well, it, it what people were admittedly shocked that um, that it was a six to three decision. We didn't even know if we were going to win, uh, far less six to three. And certainly, no one anticipated that Neil Gorsuch would be uh, the lead on this. Uh, but we were thrilled, and and he he made a compelling legal argument. Uh, and but many of us believe that it was encompassed by. And enveloped by the cultural changes I was referencing just a moment ago, that so many more Supreme Court justices now know LGBTQ people, have them in their lives, have them in their families and circles of friends, and it's begun to change how they think, and it's begun to get change how they feel, and that's begun to make it easier for them to land on the correct legal decisions when they have the option to do that. So it's uh, it's enormously significant. And and it's a very important signal. Uh, you know, we wanted the right to win. We wanted to win the right to marry, and it's very important. But let's face it: not everybody gets married. Not everybody is interested in getting married. But everybody needs to earn a living. So the ability to keep your job, despite your sexual orientation or your gender identity, is enormous.
2: So, is there anything you'd like to add?
3: Well, the only thing I'd add in this time when we're when the news is filled with stories about racial injustice and police brutality is that many of us feel that the LGBTQ community has a real strong obligation, a, a literal responsibility to fight against racial injustice because we understand what it's like to have the police be brutal towards you. The, it wasn't too long ago that that the, the police were viewed as the enemy of the LGBTQ community. They were the ones who would harass us, arrest us, beat us up, jail us, just for who we are. And so, as some, as, as we we know what it's like to be hated and despised and feared, not for what you do, but for who you are. And so, I believe, and many of the people I know believe that we it's incumbent upon us to fight even harder against racial injustice because. To a certain large extent, some of us have been there and done that.
2: Arlene Isaacson, thank you for joining us today.
3: My pleasure.
1: All right, Kayanne, let's talk about apologies um, and the idea of the apology as, as part of public relations and the role it has in Managing a situation that's gotten out of control, rectifying a major mistake or public relations error, or, or simply doing or saying something that, uh, that you're genuinely sorry for. Because the apology is used a lot, and I'm one of those people in this business that feels that it is very rarely used properly. Uh, in fact, it's misused. What do you think?
0: Um, I think there's a time and a place. And the situation has to, I think it it really does depend. I don't know that there's one easy answer. Um, in the world of social media, particularly, and uh, a news cycle that just doesn't stop, um, we're seeing more and more people make mistakes, um, or speak out of hand particularly business leaders and executives that you know might do or say things on their own personal pages and you know just as a caveat to everyone out there on on Twitter or Facebook when you put the little you know these are my own opinions and do not reflect that's nice but it doesn't actually translate to the real world in terms of whatever you say on that page is considered public um There's not a lot of privacy for uh, particularly for public figures anymore. And when you make a mistake, I do think in a lot of circumstances, you've got to own it. Um, But then you have to but you have to mean it. And, you know, you and I have talked about this. We're talking about this earlier. It has to be real and people can see through when it's not.
1: I, I totally agree. And, and, and you're right. <clears throat> just because you have a disclaimer, these are my opinions. OK, well, if they're your opinions, then then, then we're going to assign uh, any credibility or accountability to to, to you and you only. Uh, and, and that's fine. And people do need to be aware, not just public figures, not just executives, not just celebrities, not just the people who are in the news, but anybody that mm-hmm. you absolutely are at risk of a personal You know, scaled reputation crisis, even if you're just some person expressing an opinion that's not and you're not really a public figure. You you Almost everyone has to behave like a public figure in a way and and understand the limits when they're posting things on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. Like, you know, I'm very vocal on Facebook uh, and, Mm -hmm. and I'm aware of that all the time. So you, yeah, it's, it's, it's all about accountability. As far as the apology, I'm a firm believer in insincerity is absolutely obvious when in an apology particularly, and it's damaging, it's absolutely damaging. And you you, know, you should never say you're sorry, unless you really mean it. And that might sound weird, but it, it's, I think it's a reasonable principle because if if you're just trying to use an apology as a tactic, well then what good is it? If you if you if you've done someone wrong or if you've crossed a line or if you you know if you've done damage, if a company has done damage, the first thing they need to do is be accountable to that and 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 to recognize that and to take the right action. That's more important than the apology. It's to immediately take the right corrective action and then and then talk about what you've done to fix it. Um, you know, I've made, you know, everyone makes mistakes or I've made an error or we've, you know, it does not ring true and therefore you're doing yourself more damage.
0: Yeah. You know, it goes back to those, the simple lessons that were, that were taught as children. Um, actions speak louder than words. If you're going to say sorry, yes, you must be sorry, but you you have to be ready to do the right thing and to make necessary changes. When we have these conversations with, with, with clients or, or people, the first thing we say is, if you do the right thing, then that's what we communicate. And that, it has to be a larger, it can't just be saying the right thing for PR's sake. You've got you've to gotta do and say the right thing for your organization and because it is in fact right. And the rest of it will follow. Um, it, it's, it's not the other way around.
1: Absolutely. That's really good fundamental crisis PR advice. Uh, you know, it, it, the, the, the PR strategy really just flows from corrective action. OK, we've had a, we've had a massive data breach. Just use that as an example. Uh, how do we deal with this? Well, you, you deal with it by controlling the breach, informing everyone properly, telling them exactly how it impacts them, how you've corrected it. How you have protected them, and any steps that they may need to take in cooperation with you as a company to ensure their uh, data is safe going forward. Um, mm-hmm. I don't really think there's an apology in there because the most important thing is taking the corrective action and then telling people you've done it, um, uh, and 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 not and, and not spending a lot of time on being defensive or talking about your company culture. Fix the problem and let people know you let people know what you're doing. There you go. That'll
0: be $10,000, everyone. You know, I think the point that you make there is one that's worth pointing out, which is in some instances, there is a difference between an apology and being held accountable. Um, And you must be held accountable and and hold yourself accountable um, in these instances. And that's where that's the most important part. Um, I think in some cases, the apology is secondary to that. But not always
1: not
4: always.
5: All right, Kyan, thanks a lot. Hi, this is Ben Josephson, uh, Senior Vice President at O'Neill & Associates. Uh, I am excited to introduce our next guest, uh, Connor Doherty, a uh, New York Times reporter and the author of a new book, Golden Gate's fighting for housing in America. Um, My colleagues and I are involved with housing issues across our professional and personal lives. We work with developers and on projects to get more housing built. We represent and serve on the boards of homelessness organizations. And through our daily personal and professional lives, we experience the impact of the, say, challenging housing market uh, here in greater Boston. Uh, So for all of those reasons, I was very interested to hear about uh, Connor's book, which, although it focuses mostly on Bay Area housing, the themes and political struggles are very relevant to what we face in greater Boston. Um, So thank you, Connor, for accepting the invitation. I'm pleased to have you here on uh, joining us here on OA on Air. Uh, Thank you. So. Tell us a little bit about your reporting, you know, not only sort of day to day through your work for The Times, but also how that led you uh, to research and and write this book.
6: So I've been covering housing uh, at The Times and The Wall Street Journal for give or take 10 years. And uh, one of the things that had always interested me was this so-called NIMBY problem. Uh, You know, NIMBY means, of course, not in my backyard, and it's come to symbolize people who complain whenever a development, particularly a high-density development, is proposed anywhere near them. Now, you know, the idea of a NIMBY is kind of a stereotypical thing that you see all around the country. The sort of archetypal NIMBY is an older person who goes to a city council meeting and kind of complains uh, about shadows or something like that. but. Uh, what interested me was there had started to be like a lot of economic research, particularly by a Harvard economist named Ed Glazer there, and that really showed that this was not just a, a small little local issue; that this was a, a huge national issue. Uh, that it had you know raised housing prices far beyond what they should be. That it had forced people to commute much further than than would otherwise be the case if more housing was built closer to the job centers. And uh, on top of that, there was even some evidence that this was disrupting migration patterns and uh, actually like making it so that people didn't take jobs in other cities because it was too expensive for them to move there. And uh, I guess the fact that this, you know, kind of seemingly like little local city council problem was being treated as this, you know, extremely dire economic issue for the whole country. I, I found that really interesting and once i found that interesting i went looking for a story to illustrate it and uh that was actually a lot harder than you might think um the you know if you think about it um you know the, 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 there's a lot of nimbies as i said very present at these meetings but i'd never seen anyone uh other than a developer themselves who had really formed a a a, a, a constituency that would try to kind of be um pushing for more housing. You know, again, the people, people who build the housing or the people who, um, you know, sometimes unions and, you know, the people who are directly involved with getting paid to build the housing would do it, but not really some random person. So eventually I met this woman, Sonia Trous, who had started calling herself the SF Yimby for yes in my backyard. And she was a, a math teacher who had just kind of started in her free time uh, going to these city council meetings or board of supervisors meetings. San Francisco does not have a city council. Um, uh, And and, and just complaining, saying, you know, you need to build more housing. And it was a very odd thing. She would just show up to these meetings and just during the allotted public comment time, usually about two minutes, would just say, yeah, I... I think we have a housing shortage in the city, and I'm for this project. And then another project would be proposed, and she would show up and say, Hi, we have a housing shortage in the city, and I'm for this project. And just every single thing that came down the pipeline, whether it was a luxury condo or uh, subsidized affordable housing, she would just show up and say, I'm for this, I'm for this. And she started to kind of uh, amass this group of followers, and then um, pretty wealthy tech people started giving her money. She eventually quit her job um, and sort of became a full time activist. Then some of the people around her ended up creating pretty significant nonprofits. They ended up getting very involved with, um, you know, a couple uh California politicians, ultimately raised um, you know, this apparatus around her, raised millions of dollars and started proposing some pretty significant legislation. So watching this kind of, I guess what it really comes down to is asking the question. How do you how does somebody form a constituency that is fighting for more housing, um, but isn't directly involved with it, you know, and, and and to some in a way that they're housing consumers. They are people who might potentially live in a home that hasn't been built yet. Um, and so I guess um, it was a combination of trying to find a way to illustrate those. Really um, kind of wonky economic ideas about the cost of NIMBYism. But what I realized the deeper I got into the book and the more I found these amazing characters was this is kind of like a political awakening for a generation. You know, if you look at Sonia and all these people around her, they typically are millennials, they're typically people who've been locked out of the housing market. And they, you know, they, they've formed a constituency, the likes of which we've never really seen before. And watching how they did that, um, I, I thought that was, it was it was a really interesting opportunity to get in on the ground floor of something that, you know, sort of really see a movement as it began. And ultimately, it's become this big national thing. They now have these national YIMBY conferences. Um, Julian Castro, the former uh, Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, was supposed to speak at their conference in uh, April, but it was canceled due to COVID-19. And it's I become national a national
5: one of the more, uh, sorry, the more fascinating little, little tidbits in your book sort of towards the end when you're describing the, the conference in Boston and sort of the, 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 the myriad folks that are participating in it. And I'll just read this, this little passage that I thought was interesting. You said the cities were different, the symptoms the same, a shortage of housing and growth and high paying jobs leads to rising rents and home prices, leads to outrage about displacement, leads to hatred of developers and calls for more rent control. Leads to a counter movement of some sort of Yimby group, leads to race and class conflict as people huddle to their sides. And I, I thought that that was just sort of the encapsulation of the the the, the politics of, of of housing, which you know I think is fascinating because it doesn't really it doesn't really line up very neatly on this on this left right spectrum. Um, you know you you have sort of environmentalists, homelessness activists, labor unions, and poor communities. You know, many many of which would be in agreement on you know a huge spectrum of issues, but but can't seem to get themselves aligned on housing.
6: Yeah, and housing is a weird thing. I was thinking about this the other day. Um, there are other kinds of businesses, technology, for instance, where they're not really very well. They're not really very regulated. Uh, you know, sort of prominently, Facebook. Uh, you know, we've got some sort of consent decree or, it got some sort of like, you know, whatever you want to call it, like penalty from the FTC. And they just ignored it, you know, because they subsequently have busted again. But, you know, if you think about it, there's just a lot going on in the background. It's hard to see, you know, it involves kind of high tech stuff. Are they really looking at people's information this way or that way? Right. It's just, it's hard to police. Whereas development is just so regulated, meaning you can't just go build some random building and no one will notice. You can't just slip an extra floor in there um, as you're, you know, so in addition to that, it's just this, this, you know, you have to go, there's no way to build a building, you know, other than to just go through your city council, go through the whole process and, um, and, and that, you know, and, and that to some extent, that's great because, you know, uh, housing is, you know, the public's land. We all live together. There, there's something different about land. And, and I think that is how it should be. But the other but the thing that this creates, I think, is. It's an opportunity for all sorts of different constituencies to acquire power. Labor unions often pair up with environmentalists because. If they can use some sort of environmental logic to stop a project, they can they can use it to negotiate for wages and stuff. Uh, many community based organizations use kind of the uh, the cudgel of uh, disapproval to get what are called community benefit agreements, where they you know basically get paid something from the developer, um, and uh, you know, and neighbors. I mean, in the most egregious cases, you'll see neighbors tell their own neighbor, "Hey, if you want to put that addition on your house." Um, could you build me a fence or else I'll go protest it at the city council? I mean, that happens here in the Bay Area quite a lot. And I'm not saying any of these things are on the whole bad, like, you know, B- Bay Area uh, or, you know, if, if you're a developer and, and, and you know, you're going to really have a huge impact on a neighborhood, maybe you should have to do a community benefit agreement. And, you know, the, obviously the environment does figure into things and whatever. Right. But I do think it's gotten way out of hand. And I also think that, as is always the case with everything in the world, whenever a move to streamline something really represents a move to curb someone's power, uh, and so many of these constituencies just basically have no real interest in streamlining, um, you know, any of these processes because, because their voice would then, even if, even if that led to more housing overall, and even if that ultimately might be a better outcome for society at large, they would lose their power. And that's, that's just hard for people to take. I'll give you an, another example in, in the Bay area or in California, we have this env- environmental law called the California Environmental Quality Act. It's done a lot of good, but it's also widely abused. And even the most ardent environmentalists will tell you this thing is widely abused. I mean, there was a, uh, a, um, a, a very prominent situation where someone wanted to run a commuter rail line on an old, um, on an existing rail line, and somebody protested it on the grounds there was literally a lawsuit filed on the grounds that this would lead to squeaking and grease, uh, literally. And um, but when you talk to people about well, how would you reform this law? Um, which, by the way, often ends up perpetuating sprawl because it paradoxically makes it harder to build um, housing uh, in, in infill er- in areas that are already populated because that's where people are most likely to file lawsuits. But you start talking to people about okay, well, hey look, this is a law that despite its best intentions, uh, often leads to more sprawl, often leads to more of the kind of development that environmentalists are pretty like ardently against. And yet they just you can't nobody wants to talk about reforming it. Because that represents a loss of something. And so I think the kind of constituent nature of housing makes it impossible to streamline uh, for all those reasons. so so you
5: mentioned you mentioned sprawl and and that so much of the solution is rooted in in communities like San Francisco, like Boston, you know building more sort of transit oriented development, more infill. How, you know, we're, we're in the middle, we're in the middle of a, of a pandemic where sort of the, the notion of density is like an anathema. And, you know, there's all this sort of anecdotal evidence of, of people sort of picking up and leaving, you know, places like, you know, New York City, it, it might be too soon, but but how do you sort of feel like those two things are going to get reconciled that the overwhelming need for the continuation of, of new and dense housing, when when people are of a mindset that, you know, Either now or into the future, sort of density could could in fact be quite dangerous.
6: For, for starters, there's no evidence that density on its whole is dangerous. Um, the, um, the 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 there has been a ton of evidence that shows that crowded housing is a huge problem, but the dense housing is not uh, a huge problem. So I'll give you an example: the worst COVID nineteen outbreaks have been in um, uh, Manhattan, or I'm sorry, had been in Queens, not in Manhattan, right? Uh, there in Boston, there's a neighborhood called Chelsea, uh, which has really, really bad, um, COVID-19 outbreaks, but a lot of it has to do with crowded housing. And on top of that, there is some affordable housing in Chelsea, meaning subsidized housing where the number of people per bedroom is quite a bit lower because it's subsidized. So they don't have to crowd in to afford the rent. And the rates in those buildings, I'm actually working on a story about this, is considerably lower than the surrounding buildings. So uh, I do not think there's any evidence that density, on the whole, leads to COVID. Now, obviously, you know, density is not better than um, if you lived, uh, you know, in a in a in a in a sparsely populated area in a sparsely populated house. You would obviously be better off than if you lived in A densely populated area, and a sparsely populated house. But most people aren't going to live that way. Even suburbs are much more dense than we give them credit for. Uh, And uh, and on top of that, there's been all sorts of evidence that very, very rural areas with crowded housing have much more uh, risk of COVID-19. So Native American reservations have actually been ravaged by this, in part because they have more people per bedroom. There's this story in the Wall Street Journal yesterday about how uh, really, really rural areas with crowded housing have the same pattern. So I think that just to sort of begin with that premise. Um, sure. Now, on the on the other hand, um, one of the things that happens with housing is people bring their assumptions to it. And these assumptions are very often wrong, but it doesn't even really matter if they're wrong because they end up becoming political talking points, end up driving the conversation um, and, and ultimately lead to whether or not someone approves something. Um, so I think this density thing will, um, will play a role, but I also think it'll be offset by people who are worried about crowded housing. And, um, I just, I, I think we need to, on top of all this, I think we need to remember, um, that a lot of what we're doing here doesn't have like a lot of choices to it, right? Like we build densely because it's cheaper to do that. There's, we don't do it. I mean, Yes, people have come to like that in some cases. And yes, there are people who like a more dense area versus a more, um, you know, uh, a sparse kind of suburban area. For, but for, for end, yeah, But in the end, most people live in giant metro areas and most of the economic activity in this country is generated in giant metro areas. And there is basically no evidence that any of that's going to change. And and then I always ask people say well, quote everyone's moving to the suburbs I'm like well for starters who's everyone one two where are they going to live you know there's not some like empty field full of suburban homes that everyone's been like waiting to move to if you know if I always say to everyone it's like well it, the biggest housing boom that could ever happen is if everyone left the city because suddenly they'd have to build housing for them. And you know what? They'd probably have to build it closer together. They'd probably want some sort of common road to get the people there. Sounds like they're building another city pretty quickly, right? So I don't really know. I I just, I basically am somewhat skeptical of the world changing in huge ways um, because I just think it's too expensive. Now, will more people work for home? Absolutely. Will more people work from home occasionally? I think that one will, you know, because I, I work from home kind of like whenever I want, um, but not every day. And um, I think more, you know, at least until COVID, I think more people will be like that. But I just I just don't see, um, I mean, I've already seen there's been huge losses of productivity. I, I just I just basically don't see things changing that much because uh in the end, this is kind of uh this is kind of mercenary, but it's true, you know, people are trying to create wealth and jobs and build companies, and that's hard to do remotely. And the companies that can do it remotely are kind of already doing it.
5: And, and so when you talk about this sort of migration, this natural migration to, to metro areas, and, and you know, you, you do spend a lot of focus on on sort of what's wrong in the Bay Area. But, you know, when you look out across the country, who who's getting this right? Who's sort of figured out the balance of some of the equities that you talk about and um, in, in, in and are able to sort of balance out their ho- housing stock with with their uh, with their economic development interests.
6: Um. I, so the short answer is I don't have uh, like nobody because this is like a hard thing, right? And this is always going to be a hard thing, right? Like, how do people live together in these very complicated, multicultural, crowded uh, places? That's like. That's like the human question, right? This has never been easy. It's never going to be easy, right? Um, So let's just start with that. I think that there's been a lot of individual policies that have been great. Minneapolis basically got rid of single family zoning. um, So you can build a triplex on any city lot now. I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, I think, uh, you know, on top of that, one kind of conclusion I've come to, which... uh, is unpopular. I think that the, if you go look at a place like Phoenix, um yes, they have a ton of sprawl, they're kind of the poster child for that type of development. But you look at a place like Phoenix and uh they have a lot of wonderful lovely dense neighborhoods. They also have a lot of like golf course type sprawl. My sense of things is that uh the regulatory environment that's going to allow the sprawl is probably going to be the same kind of regulatory environment that allows you to build uh, interesting dense uh, developments. Um I, it doesn't have to be that way. It's just my observation that that seems to be how it is.
5: Because Um, there's just no, there's no sort of friction that's built into the regulatory environment.
6: Yeah. And it just, you know, people there experiment with stuff. And if you want to experiment with stuff, they're just sort of like, like the first car-free development built from scratch in America is being built right now in Tempe, Arizona. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like, you know, it's the kind of development that the Bay Area says it wants, but won't allow um, I think sometimes when you try so hard to create the thing you want, you create nothing. Uh, whereas in Phoenix, they sort of say, "Do whatever." Um, yeah, I mean, I should know. Tempe is a college town that's actually like more dense than you might think it is. Uh, so you know, it's 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 not emblematic of the entire valley. But um, but I'm just saying it's it's an example of 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 a really interesting development but one that's not happening where you think it might happen. So like I said, I think there are individual policies that are being passed and I think there are individual places, but this is, you know, it's hard. Uh, once a bunch of people I mean, we have this pattern throughout you know, pretty much for a century in this country where we've never really solved housing problems, we've only solved transportation problems. And what I mean by that is we just find some new whether it's trains or cars or buses, we find some new way to get people um, more quickly to virgin land, right? And then, and then, and then, when that doesn't work, we invent a new mode of transportation to get them further, and we just sprawl and sprawl and sprawl and sprawl. But whenever we start trying to build housing where people already are, that just always turns out to be more difficult. Um, and I, I, like I said, I mean, it, it's always going to be difficult. But I think um, I think that's. I think it's something we have to do. I want to make one small point though, which I think is really important. Um, This is not totally unprecedented by any means. It's always been difficult, but it's also not unprecedented. So let me give you an image, an image that everybody listening right now has seen, but maybe not thought about as deeply as I have. Um, There's an iconic image of San Francisco of, uh, I think it's six or seven houses along a row in Alamo Square and they're called the painted ladies. And these are these beautiful um, kind of colorful homes that go down this park and you can see the uh, San Francisco skyline in the background. Uh, this, it was the opening of the 80s TV show, Full House. Um, and on oh, yeah. top My of- My 10 year old
5: is watching the reboot. So I'm, I'm very familiar.
6: <laughs> exactly. And on top of that, it's like postcards Every I mean, everyone has seen this image of these painted ladies with the skyline in the background, right? Well, if you actually go there, Uh, and in person, you'll find that uh, budding up against the uppermost house is a seven-story apartment building on the corner. And it's this giant apartment building and it sits right next to one of those houses. It is always cropped out of the picture because I think it it, uh, uh, doesn't hue to what people's view of what they think a beautiful row of homes like that should look like is. But what I think is important about that image is it shows us as this was always how we built neighborhoods. I mean, you go to any city, Boston, San Francisco, Minneapolis, and near the early near the inner core of the city, in, in the single-family home neighborhoods within the city, you will see all sorts of older apartment buildings mixed in with the housing. They're everywhere. Um, and they're typically older because they are they they are the, the units that they built. Before many cities in the '60s and '70s basically outlawed them, right? So, what I think is important about that image is if we're trying to build a diverse, kind of functioning city with a lot of different housing types, we used to do that, and that's what it looks like. It looks like things like the painted ladies next to a giant apartment complex.
5: No, I mean, and I think the, I think the, the the equivalent to that in Boston to the extent it exists. I mean, you've got you've got big elements of the Back Bay with 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 you know beautiful buildings that were built mostly in the eighteen hundreds, but with a with a fair number of interspersed, larger apartment buildings that were clearly more, you know, mid-19th century. And so that that's a very, very, you know, for everybody you know sitting in Boston, that's a very familiar image what what you describe as well.
6: well um, like I said, they're everywhere. Every city you go to, if you just walk around the older single family neighborhoods. I've, I've yet to find one that didn't have some other stuff mixed into it.
5: So, um, how do we find your book? How do we find you? Um,
6: well, I guess I am at Connor or you can just go, I don't spend a whole lot of time on my website, but you can um, also go to the New York times, uh, you know, and check out my stuff. Um, the book can be bought anywhere you buy books. Um, And, uh, you know, I, I, I go to my local bookstore, but, um, it's, it's on every online outlet as well. So, um, there you go.
5: Right. And it's Golden Gates fighting for housing in America. Connor Doherty, Thank you very much.
6: Thank you.
4: Tom. How are you? I'm doing fine. I think this is the either 12th, 13th, or 14th week. We've done this remotely, and it's worked. I'm actually getting to a point where I, I know how to get on Zencaster. Actually. <laughs> <laughs> I mean by myself. You know,
0: it's the little things in life, right?
4: <sighs> oh my gosh. I, I, I can do WebEx. I can do Zoom by myself. I can do Google GoTo by myself. This adapt and me.
0: overcome. I think it's been incredible to see how you know. I think our workforce, um, which has always been primarily in office, but workforce across the nation really um, adapt and, and make working from home and working remotely work when we have to. Because you know, just this example of our our podcast producers figuring out how we could continue to do our podcast um, is an important part of our our week and. In our business. So it's been, you know, I think it's exciting. It's exciting to push the limits. And sometimes we just don't do it unless we're forced to.
4: I think it's incredibly important. Um, anyway, this week, we're going to talk about current events, aren't we?
0: I mean, I think that Two Minutes with Tom has really become with everything that's going on a, a kind of a weekly digest of just what's what's happening. And I think it's an important to take a look and kind of pick some of it apart, and particularly as we're seeing glimmers of good news and good things happening, um, both politically and policy-wise, in a time where we haven't, and we we saw a little bit of that this week.
4: I think that's right. I also think that uh, I want to take my hat off and congratulate the Supreme Court of the United States for their landmark decision today, today to keep the DACA program the, that's, a, that's the young immigrant uh, population uh, here in the United States, as opposed to having them sent out uh, by the Immigration Department. Uh, Justice Roberts, for the second time in two weeks and the third time uh, in the last couple of years on very important issues, has done just the, the right thing. And the thing that was not predictable um by the by, the conservative element uh, in the White House, and I, I must tell you that that um, he deserves just a, a round of sincere applause and a pat on the back for his leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I I just I can't speak highly enough about it. On the other hand, I think the other significant issue is that the hotbeds of coronavirus have kind of dried up, and there are other spots around the country that are beginning surges, uh, where they hadn't been before. And I, I, I think it's a, I I think as people are getting tired of being cooped up in their homes and want to get out, uh, because they're community-based animals, I, I, I I get all that because I feel the same thing myself. People still have to be wary and, and very cautious about going out and mixing with, with a lot of crowds and people, uh, when they don't have to do that. Um, and to keep the hygiene is is important is, is up to date as you possibly can, whether it's washing your hands or putting a mask on.
0: Yeah, masks and social distancing as uh, as people are are feeling the need to get out, which to your point I, I wholly understand, and um you know people get antsy and feel a little cooped up, but there are ways to do it um in a safe in a safe way. So that's what people should be doing, but. That's- that's exactly right. And then, um, so actually going back to the Supreme Court, uh, it was a big week for the Supreme Court uh, and decisions that were, to your point, uh, perhaps not expected. Earlier this week, we saw the Supreme Court ruling also on LGBTQ rights at work. Um, and that was something that we didn't, as I think politically, anticipate uh due to the numbers on the Supreme Court and it came down in favor of where it should. And so two, you know, you talk about DACA, we've got the LGBTQ ruling twice in one week, we've seen the Supreme court, which Trump has uh, as president, really picked (laughs) people that we wouldn't have expected uh, to come down on the right side of those, those issues. What does that say about, how we go from here? Because as a as an administration, they must be very frustrated right now. These are two issues that um, did not go the more conservative route.
4: I, I think that I think frustrated would be a mild word <laughs> I'd use for the you know for the for the feelings that people in the White House have today. Um, I, I do think. When it, when it all comes to pass the system works and I think if you appoint very smart people men and women uh, of every description to the court whether they are perceived to be conservatives or liberals uh, generally speaking if they're of the caliber that we historically have had on that on that on that uh, on that court then you're going to get the right decisions that are going to move uh, America ahead and not drive them backwards and I, I just think it's terrific what's happened here
0: Certainly renews renews your faith a little bit in the system and the separation of powers. And um, I think we we often forget how government was established and what its intentions were with the with the different branches going back to Civics 101. Uh, And I think this week we've really seen that play itself out in a way that was intended uh, when the Constitution and, and the branches were established.
4: Couldn't agree with you more. I think it's great. And uh it's been a you know, it's a it's a it's a it's a it's a hallmark, hallmark week of decisions on the on the part of the court that um frankly have just uh have taken an unpredictable course as you say, but you know, have have, have given people an awful lot of relief. Can you imagine a young person uh, expecting to be you know, put on a plane and flown out of the United States and not protected by by, by the Constitution? extraordinary and can you imagine somebody from the lbg uh, community that has been fired because of their sexual beliefs and 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 feelings um i i just i i just feel so happy for the supreme court but more importantly for the people who were affected by very correct decisions
0: On behalf of all of us here at O'Neill & Associates, we hope you and your families are staying safe and healthy. We're proud to continue our work during this time and we'll continue doing everything we can to keep you updated. For daily city, state, and federal updates on the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic, please check out our website where updates are posted every morning. OA on Air is produced and edited by Ashley Locken and Catherine O'Brien. Talk to you next week.